Now it's Media Watch. This week, Colin Peacock looks at how journalists' jobs are getting harder and reporters under pressure in China. First, though, a survey hailing New Zealand as one of the world's safest places made headlines this week, but did it really belong in the bulletins? We haven't adjusted for the science, which clearly now shows that this virus is not as serious as we first Mm. thought. You said that yourself, Jack, back in March. You said we need to be fearful of the virus, but not too fearful because it's not that much worse than the flu. I didn't say that. That was Jack Tame on TBNZ's Q&A show last weekend talking to Dr Simon Thornley, one of the academics in the Plan B group, which thinks the way the government is going about tackling COVID-19 here is doing us more harm than good. Now, Jack Tame didn't recognise either the words or the claim that Dr Thornley attributed to him, so he put his guess straight on that and then moved the interview on. I, I, I would certainly not have made any sort of comment like that comparing it with the flu because I don't personally know. I'm not an epidemiologist. However, in pointing out to Dr Thornley that the COVID containment strategy we have here is widely hailed around the world as effective, Jack Tame himself made a claim which could have used a second look as well. We've had lower rates of COVID-19 as a, as, a per capita, um, as a per capita measure. We've had relatively low death rates compared to most countries on Earth. Indeed, I mean, Forbes magazine, I think, yesterday called us the second safest place to be in the world. But Jack Tame wasn't the only one reporting that this country is the second safest place on the planet from COVID-19, according to long-established US-based business news outlet Forbes. Today's lower numbers came as a new survey was released that ranked New Zealand as the second safest country for COVID-19 behind Germany. That was News Hub at 6 the night before. And the same day, rnz.co.nz had a news story about that too, which was then republished by Stuff, TVNZ and the Otago Daily Times. And the same day, News Hub's website and the Herald site carried their own reports on our silver medal status in that new survey. And then, on Sunday morning... This led RNZ's news. A public relations executive says New Zealand will benefit from a better global reputation after being ranked the second safest country during the pandemic. The study by Forbes magazine places New Zealand behind only Germany. And the Auckland-based PR professional Deborah Peed told RNZ we should be proud of that. You don't want to turn a global pandemic into a competition, but I do believe we can take some comfort from this. It says that um, we're handling it well. Forbes is a media name with heritage and some clout. But as the Herald and News Hub stories pointed out, it wasn't actually Forbes which did that survey. They just reported it via tech writer John Kurtzia. And it's important to note the ranking isn't what most people expect. It's not just about how many infections there are right now or how many deaths COVID-19 has caused. Rather, it's a complex series of assessments on multiple medical, economic and political factors. Those complicated calculations which spawned the COVID rankings had actually been compiled by an outfit called the Deep Knowledge Group, which isn't exactly a household name. Deep Knowledge Group's new COVID-19 special analytical case study is designed to classify, analyse and rank the economic, social and health stability achieved by each of the 250 countries and regions included in its analysis. But the first thing in the news reports about this, flagging up that this might need another look, is the claim that the survey assessed 250 countries. By most measures, there are not that many nations in the world. In fact, the Deep Knowledge Group said it ranked 252 countries and regions of the world. 
but some of these made little sense. For example, among the cellar dwellers in 221st place was the French-run Caribbean island of San Barthélemy, where just over 9,000 people live. Currently, it's got just five active cases, and it's never had more than 18, and the authorities there, acting on advice from France, locked down early on, began testing, and closed its borders. And as an island, that would be a pretty safe place now from COVID-19. Meanwhile, one place below San Barthélemy is the Siachen Glacier, which is in the eastern Karakoram range in the Himalayas. It's a territory disputed by India and Pakistan, and the only people you'll likely find up there are the occasional Indian army patrols. And they don't stay long because the valley is so inhospitable. But it's pretty likely to be pretty safe from COVID-19. There are 10 Pacific Island nations that have no COVID-19 at all, but they're ranked pretty low in this survey. And as Forbes' John Curtsy pointed out himself, Sri Lanka, which has just 12 reported deaths so far, hardly deserves to be in 92nd place. So, at a glance then, there are some problems with this, none of them mentioned in the New Zealand news stories. This week, statistics professor Thomas Lumley took a look at this on the University of Auckland's Stats Chat blog, and he concluded that the latest rankings didn't even stack up well with those in the Deep Knowledge Group's earlier survey in June. Professor Lumley said the group's latest findings didn't tally either with other rankings like the Global Health Security Index. Only Australia and South Korea feature in the top ten of both. And having published and publicised the Deep Knowledge Group survey in Forbes, John Kurtzier might be regretting it now. He amended his online story this week to say this. I've received comments from people in multiple Caribbean nations and from people in Vietnam wondering why their countries did not rank higher. In addition, some people are concerned that racism or bias might be reflected in the rankings. John Curtsier went on to say that he'd talked to officials in the Caribbean and officials in Vietnam for more information and asked the Deep Knowledge Group for an explanation. And he got one from Dmitry Kaminsky, the general partner of the Deep Knowledge Group. He said they're still working on their methodology and finding it hard to get consistent data in some places. Presumably the Siachen Glacier is one of those. But when it came to Vietnam, he said this. It was probably our mistake to put it into Tier 1. And in the next iteration, most likely, it will move into Tier 2. And that makes it all sound a bit arbitrary for a supposedly scientific comparison, but Dmitry Kaminsky added he'd recently received information from experts in Asia telling him that Vietnam is hiding cases of infected people. But one country where the deep knowledge group rankings have been applauded is Israel, which was rated number one in their first survey back in April. Back then, the online Times of Israel reported that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and political allies had been trumpeting that triumph on social media and in media interviews, so they took a closer look. Investigative reporter Simone Weinglass described the Deep Knowledge Group as a rabbit hole of weirdness. The Times of Israel said that other founders and associates of the Deep Knowledge Group are listed as advisors to a variety of overlapping companies and agencies, many of which the group appears to have set up itself. And all this mirrors the group's own impenetrable website, which declares, among other things, that deep knowledge is transcendent power. And tellingly, the site also proudly displays 500 online articles from bona fide news outlets all around the world reporting its research. Our analytical and non-profit activities are powerful tools for journalists and other strategically relevant people and organisations, says the Deep Knowledge Group's website. But when its next set of rankings come out, 
bona fide media should probably take a look at them more deeply before they decide to take up those tools again. When COVID-19 hit back in March and the country went into lockdown for weeks, the local media industry saw its income dry up almost immediately. Media companies big and small, which were already having a hard time financially, were wondering whether they would survive the crisis at all. Well, six months on, they have, with one exception, the country's preeminent magazine publisher Bauer Media, which shut down in early April. But the other ones all cut costs to survive and hundreds of journalists lost their jobs. But for years, newsrooms around the country have been shrinking and their journalists have been doing more with less. So for those that remain in work, a hard job is getting even harder, as Hayden Donnell now reports. The story of the decline of the media industry has been written hundreds of times. By now, most of the main beats are familiar. Classified ads collapse first, lost to sites like TradeMe in New Zealand or Craigslist overseas. Advertising revenue followed, siphoned off by the big tech firms, Facebook and Google. Print subscriptions fell and viewer numbers declined for TV as content was pumped out for free on the internet. The stories on that gradual collapse often focus on its economic aspects. Last week, former Metro magazine journalist Tess Nickel wrote a feature which was a little different. It was for Essential Services Zine, an online publication set up by one of her colleagues at Bauer after the company shut down. The story highlights how those economic conditions have affected the actual job of journalism. She describes the difficulties reporters face keeping up with the internet's unceasing 24-7 news cycle in increasingly low-paid and understaffed newsrooms. That combination of declining funding and rising workload has consequences, not just on the nature of reporting, but on who sticks around in the job. This is a passage from Nichols' article. Many people leave taking their talent and their promise with them. This matters not because we should want every aspiring journalist to be able to fulfil their dreams, although that would be nice, but because too many chances to create good work and good journalists are wasted and the overall quality and breadth of journalism suffers. Nicola isn't the only one making this point. It's been echoed by commentators overseas, including Alexandria Neeson of the Columbia Journalism Review. Most of us are on Twitter constantly. Most of us are refreshing websites, are uh, checking, you know, those breaking news alerts that sometimes are just coming back to back. And that's what, you know, leaves us at the end of the day feeling like, how can we possibly get up tomorrow and do this all over again? This happens to me all the time. I go in to a room to take a call and I come out and there's this commotion and I'm just like, well, what happened? And at that point, something else is already happening. And so I'm already playing catch up. You're in this sort of constant state of catching up and you never, you never really feel like, okay, I'm on steady ground and I know what the news of the day is because it's so constantly changing. That applies here too. One senior New Zealand journalist who's worked for several major media companies recently told me her job was impossible. She had also received counselling for burnout. Nichols says that's a common story and one that poses a real threat to the job of journalism and ultimately to the quality of our news. In her eyes, fixing the problem might mean changing the way journalism is practised and perhaps just doing less of it. What it feels like on a day-to-day level is there's never any money, there's never enough time, there's never enough people to do everything. Everything always needs to be done, you know, five minutes ago. 
you're either trying to fill the paper, which is a concrete physical thing, which has a certain amount of space, or you're trying to fill 24 hours of radio or TV content. There are parameters of time around how much work you can produce. Whereas online, there are no parameters because the space of online is endless. I use the phrase often, you know, shoveling content into the void. And because the news is so fast-paced, there's perhaps not a moment, enough moments, where people who are deciding what news should get made sit down and think, well, do we actually need this or not? Was there a time when journalism had more money and could actually pay more people to do that work? Um, Both my parents are journalists and they both remember working in conditions like that. I remember when I first started my job at the Herald and hearing from some of the older journalists that it was not uncommon to knock off at one and go to the pub because you'd filed all your stories for the paper that day. Also, when I started, I had um, a really lovely investigative reporter, super senior, show me around. He was going to kind of going to be my mentor, and he was showing me around on one of my first days, took me to the library and showed me how to use the microfiche. That was really well-intentioned, but also when would I ever... <laughs> have the time to go to the library and look at microfiche. You know, I used to eat lunch. All these things in the journalism movies, right? That just doesn't happen (laughs) anymore. You're looking at Twitter and then you're writing off something that's happening. Totally, totally. It's just a completely different environment. I mean, I ate lunch at my desk every day for like four years, you know, (laughs) and that's just normal. And this is not just a sob story for young reporters, you know. It's not just people going, oh, no, the industry. Because this is what, in your thesis, this is an existential threat for journalism, really. Yeah, when I say, like, oh, I ate lunch at my desk every day for four years, that's not so that people go, like, oh, that's so sad for you. The point is that when you have all these people trying to make their way in an industry where they're very, very stressed and kind of caught in, like, a bit of a churn, burnout is really common and just leaving is really common. I mean, in journalism, going into comms or PR is called going, you know, everyone jokes, going to the dark side. But, you know, lots of young reporters do that because they work in a newsroom for maybe a year, sometimes less. They just, they're working shifts, they're tired, they're feeling burnt out, they're not making any money, and they don't see where they can go from there. And so they leave and they go and they work in comms where it's more relaxed, where they make more money, where they can have kind of better quality of life outside their job. And, you know, I saw that happen with people who came in kind of around the same time that I started and after I started. And it was just such a shame because they were actually, they were much better reporters than me. You know, some of them had amazing instincts. They were so good at getting people to talk to them. They got great stories. And then they just got completely anxious and burnt out and they left. And it's, these are people who had great potential to write really good journalism, which benefits the public and the re- our readers and what information is out there to help shape the national conversation on various topics, and they're not there anymore. The other thing is that this actually skews journalism towards people who can kind of take these punishing conditions. Is journalism also now only taking a particular type of person? So you kind of do have to, like, learn to change some parts of maybe your natural personality to do your job well, and I think that that's normal and fine. Those more kind of high-conflict interactions when you're chasing breaking news, trying to talk to people who might have had a family member die, you know, that's really, really difficult. And when you can't see any way where you could graduate into another kind of role... 
you, you feel that stretching out before you as an endless yeah, prospect. and you just think, like, I just don't know if I can do this forever. Some people are better at adapting to that than others, but the point is, like, you need lots of different kinds of people, not just, you know, talking about gender and race and class, but dispositionally. You need lots of different kinds of thinkers in a newsroom. But it is interesting to me to see that so many magazines are coming back so quickly. And I think this is possibly a realisation that it's worth having these different kinds of media, you know, long-form, slower media around, because they're a vital part of the whole media ecosystem. One thing that you can control if you can't control how much money you're making is you can control how much you're producing. So Mm. do you think that the future of journalism is essentially, in some cases, doing less journalism? Yeah, I think that it has to be. If you disentangle more of your reporters from this kind of endless churn of, you know, putting out content for the website, I mean, it just makes sense, right? You will free them up to do stories that they will find more personally and professionally satisfying and that readers will probably find more valuable to read. Journalist Tess Nicholl, who lost her job when magazine publisher Bauer Media closed last April. There she was talking to Hayden Donnell about the precariousness of life as a mid-career journalist in the media industry of today. Back in 2016, an edgy Aussie TV drama told the story of a political journalist in Canberra who got caught up in a deadly diplomatic dispute with China. And all this was written by an actual Australian political journalist, Channel 9's political editor Chris Yulman. He runs from the Chinese embassy and ends up dead by the lake. Aren't you interested? Something strange is going on here. China and the US have started doing war dances. Secret City was just all fiction. However, life imitated art this week a bit and in reverse as two Australian journalists in China returned home in a hurry after an extraordinary diplomatic standoff. The ABC's Bill Bertels, based in Beijing, and Michael Smith from the Australian Financial Review in Shanghai were the last Australian journalists left in China working for foreign media. On Thursday last week, both journalists were told they were persons of interest in an investigation into TV presenter Cheng Lei, an Australian who works for a state-owned TV network in Beijing. Now, she's been detained for the past month, suspected of criminal activity endangering China's national security. Bill Bertel spent four days after that encounter with police sheltering in Australia's embassy in Beijing, while Smith took refuge in Australia's Shanghai consulate as diplomats negotiated with Chinese officials to allow them to leave the country. And back home, Bill Bertels told the ABC this. In the end, uh, we had quite a wide-ranging discussion with the police. It touched on things like Australia-China relations. It touched on things like, uh, did you ever report on the Hong Kong national security law? What sort of channels of information did you go to? But it seemed to me the two of us, Mike Smith and myself, were kind of odd people to uh, interview or interrogate if it was really just about that case. Um, So it sort of felt to me like the whole episode was about harassment. The ABC's Beijing Bureau opened in 1973, shortly after Australia first normalised relations with Mao Zedong's China. Australian correspondents have since then covered the Tiananmen Square massacre in 1989, the Olympics in 2008, the handover of Hong Kong and this year the coronavirus outbreak, all the while reporting the astonishing rise of China as an economic power and trading partner. 
But now there are no accredited Australian media journalists left in China and China has not issued any new visas for journalists to replace them. And the ABC's news director Gavin Morris says this really matters. China, understanding China, the relationship between our two countries is probably the biggest story of our time. And having our people on the ground working with our local team to tell that story is absolutely critical to the ABC. Uh, We'll get straight back on the front foot and be seeking to put correspondents uh, back there. And they're not the only ones. In March, Beijing expelled 14 American journalists working at the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post. And that was a response to the Trump administration's decision to restrict staff at Chinese state media outlets in the US. And here's what Steve Butler from the US-based Committee to Protect Journalists told the ABC this week. I mean, there's always been a hostile attitude toward the foreign press. But for whatever reason, they now seem to be extremely uninhibited in the way they're going after the press. It's not just Australia, but it's the United States. This tactic of uh, denying exit uh, over a a national security investigation really marks a new low. I mean, you could see it continue to a point where there are no foreign correspondents in China. This week, Australia turned up the tension by expelling two academics and two Chinese media executives. So could China end up becoming a news desert for foreign media? And what will be the consequences if it does? New Zealander Anna Fifield, who's soon to head home herself to become editor of the Dominion Post, is the current Washington Post bureau chief in Beijing. Journalists here routinely face harassment and intimidation by uh, authorities and police forces here. I mean, when I head out uh, to do reporting, I expect, and it often happens, I'm surrounded by seven police cars who want to know what I'm doing and, you know, run me out of town, literally. Um, but so that kind of thing has become very commonplace for foreign correspondents working in China. But what Bill Bertels and Mike Smith experienced have been uh, – Really unprecedented and really shocking to me and other foreign correspondents living in China, because while we do face this routine harassment, we've never faced this kind of threat before, the threat of detention on very serious charges. So this is clearly an escalation from the Chinese side as a way to make governments take their diplomatic disputes extremely seriously and frankly try to to make them bend to China's will. Well, back in March, there was a kind of retaliation, uh, if that's the right word, when uh, the Trump administration uh, limited the number of employees of, of Chinese state media in the US. Uh, there was a response which meant that uh, staff from uh, Wall Street Journal, New York Times and your own Washington Post, I think, were, well, I don't know if expelled is too strong a word, but you know, that certainly happened, didn't it, as a diplomatic response? Expelled is definitely not too strong a word. They were given five days to leave the country, many of them after having lived here for years and years. Uh, And this was part of this tit-for-tat between China and the U.S. Uh, Previously, before this, China had expelled three Wall Street Journal reporters over a headline on an opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal that none of these reporters had anything to do with. So we're really locked in this downward spiral there where China expelled some journalists, America expels some journalists, and, and that's still going on now. So there are uh, the, all the Chinese state media reporters in the United States, there's about 100 of them, are currently on a kind of pro forma visa extension, which uh, is due to run out, expire on November the 6th. 
just after the American election. So now we're seeing a lot of uh, journalists for American organizations who are not American nationals. So there's a, a British correspondent for the Wall Street Journal, uh, also a CNN correspondent. They have not had their press cards renewed. We need press cards to operate in China, which are issued by the government. Uh, but they have instead been given these letters extending their press cards without having formally new press cards. So this is all part of this pressure campaign to threaten the United States that even more American journalists will be kicked out uh, if the Chinese journalists are kicked out of the US. How much is this really about China's um, nervousness or anxiety about free and frank reporting of, of Western journalists you know, and the friction that causes? And how much is it just diplomatic aggro between China and other Western countries? In a way, it's a two for one, but definitely, I mean, the Chinese authorities do not like the foreign press that they're getting these days, that, you know, we have this pesky habit of telling a different story from the one that the Chinese government wants told. Anything that doesn't fit with their idea of this, of China as a rising, responsible global power is the kind of stuff they want to quash. But they had traditionally done that just by making our work extremely difficult here, by, you know, surveilling us, by trailing us, by obstructing us, and just doing everything they can to stop us being able to report. But it's really taken on a new dimension this year with the diplomatic disputes between uh, the United States and China and now Australia and China, increasingly the UK and China over the UK's um uh, response to what's been happening in Hong Kong this year with the national security law. And so increasingly they are using the journalists as a tool, as a pawn in this broader fight. And it's really, I mean, amped up over the coronavirus because this is obviously something that is that China views as extremely damaging to its efforts to sell itself as a, as a peaceful, responsible global power. Nothing to worry about here um, when the reporting has shown the initial cover-up uh, in Wuhan, the attempts to I mean, yeah, to put politics first over public health. So this is China really trying to control the narrative about about what's happened here. So I suppose if international and diplomatic relations improve uh, over coming months and years, then maybe things will be better for uh, international media and reporting in China. But uh, the Committee to Protect Journalists has been warning this past week that this is the net effect of this is a real thinning out of the ranks of international media reporting China to the world. So, I mean, do you think that from now on uh, the reporting of China just isn't going to be as thorough? And it's, it's not that it won't be as thorough because all the journalists who are expelled are now still doing really great work about uh, China and digging into things and, and have still been able to do it. But, but what's been lost is the kind of granularity of reporting, the texture of, of daily life that comes through when you have foreign correspondents on the ground. So, you know, our job here as foreign correspondents is to show what life is like in China and what's happening in China on the ground for our audiences who are not here. So when you don't have correspondents based here, but you have people uh, yeah, phoning analysts or focusing much more on the diplomacy or the kind of outward side of things or relying on Chinese social media, which is extremely heavily censored, you lose a lot of that intimacy with what is happening on the ground in China. And I think that's you know really detrimental 
to the world's understanding of China, but also to China itself, because, I mean, it means what China's doing, it's shooting itself in the foot. And all of the stories now are going to be about the South China Sea and all the reporting, you know, that people are able to do from the outside about the nefarious things that China's doing around the world. You won't have the kind of stories about what, you know, mums and dads in China want for their kids or, you know, how people are living, the the humanizing content. Although we are focusing now on foreign correspondence, and that is obviously the lens that I look through here, there has been this really dramatic shrinking of space in China for any kind of independent journalists. And we've seen that uh, with Chinese journalists in particular since Xi Jinping came to power in 2013. uh, We've seen independent Chinese uh, newspapers and news organizations closed down and constrained. And I mean, there's almost no independent Chinese reporting anymore on what's happening in China. Um, But having said that, some very, very brave Chinese reporters went out during the first outbreak of the coronavirus and did some great reporting on, um, on what had actually happened in Wuhan Um, they're really only getting one source of news, and that's the government's version of events. For the first time in almost 50 years, there won't be any uh, Australian journalists working for Australian media outlets in China, which is sort of extraordinary. But of course, in New Zealand, we haven't had any for years. Um, TVNZ had Charlotte Glennie a few years back set herself up in Hong Kong, I think. Um, That didn't last too long. Um, So when you're back here uh, soon, next month, and editing the Dominion Post and working for stuff, I mean, you're really going to feel this, aren't you, if you would like to be reporting uh, China to people in New Zealand and finding actually there's a bit less to pick from reported by people on the ground? Yeah, it's something I've thought about a lot and something I notice a lot in New Zealand in that, you know, China is so hugely important to us, you know, uh, economically, uh, diplomatically, you know, it is um, really noticeable how little coverage of China we have from a New Zealand perspective. It's not enough to be taking uh, copy into newspapers written by British journalists or BBC feeds from China. Like China, we we approach China in a different way. We have a different uh, different interests in China. So one thing I have been thinking about is how to try to report on China from a much more uh, New Zealand perspective. I hope we I'll be able to find a solution, a, a way to be able to do more of that when I get home. Anna Fifield, soon to head home to become the editor of the Dominion Post, but currently the bureau chief in Beijing for the Washington Post. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, but the Media Watch team will be back with more on the media at about 10.30 next Wednesday night with Midweek Media Watch on The Lately Show with Karen Hay. And then back again for more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National. Media Watch from Colin Peacock and Hayden Donnell, and you can listen back to their episodes as with all our conversations on Sunday morning by putting RNZ Sunday morning into the search engine.